Greetings. Welcome to The Dividing Line on a Thursday afternoon. We're hoping to get as much of the program in as we can before we get hit by a thunderstorm. So, <laughs> And it has been so long. In fact, I installed a weather uh, a weather station at my house. I've always wanted one of those little things. And so I, I installed a weather station. And ever since I put it up, sometime in May, I think, uh, the one line that has just been empty, z- zero, never, was precipitation. It hasn't rained in I don't know how long here in the Valley of the Sun. Uh, but it is raining right now. Uh, I guess it's raining out around uh, Rich's place right now. And we've got some big orange blobs heading our direction, which is good, but we'll see. Because <laughs> all the wires around here are are really dried out. <laughs> so so you all of a sudden, you all of a sudden, you know, uh, get them real wet and they tend to start doing weird things. And uh, the Max Headroom thing starts happening, I guess. So no one knows what Max Headroom is anymore. I mean, what was that in the 80s? Somewhere in there? Oh, good grief. Ugh. Uh. <laughs> so the Lord gives us uh, so many warnings that we only have so long on earth. <laughs> and one of them's when you sit back and remember stuff and going, wait a minute, that was 40 years ago. Uh, never mind. Okay, wanted to start off. I forgot that if this would have fit in so perfectly with some of what I was talking about last time um, that uh, I, I kicked myself literally within a few moments after the program was done on Tuesday going, well, I forgot that. Uh, screenshot that I have, uh, we don't need to put it up, but... Um, a comment from Facebook, I believe. Yeah, it was Facebook. From one of my Reformed brothers. And so we're going to be talking a good bit about Roman Catholicism Day, Eastern Orthodoxy Day. We're going to be providing responses to uh, claims. We're going to be looking at some video from uh, a video we started looking at before about seven Catholic things Protestants can start doing, which is just, it's nothing more than a, an, a non-Catholic apologist who just clearly doesn't know anything about Roman Catholicism or the history of the Church and the history of the Reformation and stuff like that, um, providing a platform for a Roman Catholic apologist to present the most um, de-Romanized, friendly presentation of Roman Catholicism through his channels. It's it's great. Um, But anyway... We're going to take a look at those uh, those things a little bit later on. But so since we're talking about Eastern Orthodoxy, Roman Catholicism, let's start off talking about the Reformed, shall we? <laughs> um, it is very, very important to differentiate between Reformed theology and the Reformed as a group. Um, right now, I could point you in the last week to materials from people who identify themselves as Reformed, actions, activities, teachings that are, are just so far removed from the spirit and intention of Reformed theology that it, that it leaves a lot of people going, well, why do they call themselves Reformed? Now, remember, there are, re- quote-unquote, Reformed denominations that use the term Reformed that, without a doubt, now, now hopefully you're sitting down, most of you have listened to this program before, but you might be new, we get, we get new folks all the time. Um, I totally shocked everybody in the group that we took to Germany for the Reformation uh, tour that we did in 2017. The first night in Berlin, when I did the opening presentation, I pointed out what, to me anyways, is sort of a, a given 
um, something that's just been a part of my church history studies for a very, very long time. And that is that most of the people we would be studying, specifically Martin Luther, but also John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, that these great men of the Reformation would not have extended the hand of fellowship to me at all. Um, all almost all of them would have had me kicked out of town. And some of them would have been willing to see me imprisoned and even executed. And I know that. And if you can't become a mature enough student of church history to get past that, you're never going to want to study church history, and you're not going to want to see yourself in the stream of church history. And you're really going to struggle to see how the Holy Spirit of God has been working at all in down through the down through the entire period of the Christian Church. Um, so the, the the reality is that we all today have positions that many of the reformers would not have appreciated. The term reformed has come to be attached to an exceptionally wide range of viewpoints and teachings and beliefs and things like that. So there are some very, very liberal denominations that are called Reformed. Schuler's denomination was called Reformed, but uh, Schuler is totally unrecognizable to the Reformers as far as his theology was concerned. Um, so when we talk about Reformed today, generally, I'm either talking about theology which I will defend as biblical, which uh, I was brought to through the exegesis of the text of the Old and New Testaments in the original languages. That's, that's the foundation. That's the ground. I came to appreciate its history. I came to appreciate um, uh, its development, its historical setting through my studies of church history. But I did not come to reform theology on the basis of the authority of particular individuals. I, I had already embraced the fundamentals of reform soteriology before I read Calvin. So these are the, the theology is biblical, and nothing that I say about the reformed should ever be taken as indication that I have any questions about that. But being orthodox in your Reformed theology doesn't mean that you will be balanced in how you apply that in life or even how you treat other Christians, let alone other Reformed people. And I'll tell you, quite honestly, some of the nastiest um, slander and attack and vituperative language uh, that, I will, that I've ever experienced comes from people who call themselves Reformed. Uh, the Reformed can have incredible, not just necessary argumentation amongst themselves. There, there, there are issues for us to discuss. We, we Reformed Baptists do debates with Presbyterians on baptism all the time. And we, I think, demonstrate better than almost anybody else the ability to appreciate the other side and to look past disagreements. Um, many of my forebears were, were executed uh, by 
Pado Baptists in the past uh, for their views on the subject of baptism. And today, you still have a situation where there are many who will not even begin to grant to me or to uh, my fellow uh, church members the, the, the term reform. We are not reformed at all. The, the, these, this is absolutely definitional of what it means to be reformed. Ironically, they will accept as reformed people who have significantly less orthodox views than I have of Scripture, the nature of God, the atonement, and everything else. But you've got to be a Pado baptist It's just, just written in stone. Uh, so you can believe all the rest of it. You can, you can believe everything about the sovereignty of God and the, God's grace and salvation and predestination election and all the rest of that stuff. But no, you've got to have these, you've got to dot these, dot these I's, cross these T's to be in the club. So anyway, um, Reformed people can be some of the nastiest people online. Now, I obviously don't, have, don't really end up crossing paths with a lot of um, confessionally non-Reformed people as far as having interaction with them about theological issues. That, that's not my, my tribe, and so I'm sure that there are, there's a, all sorts of things that create nastiness online in, amongst other groups, amongst Pentecostals and amongst Charismatics and amongst uh, Wesleyans and stuff like that that I don't know anything about. It's just not a part of what I deal with. My, my conservative Anglican brothers down in Sydney have to deal with just all sorts of stuff that I'm not, you know, it doesn't really end up, other than when I manage to get down to Australia, if I ever get down to Australia again, um, you know, then, then I sort of tune in on it, but it's just not normal part of my normal experience. Well, um, so we have made note of some of these things in the past, and it does seem that our Reformed brethren in Scotland and Ireland especially. Now, British Reformed folks have their own really interesting ways of doing things, okay? <laughs> The, the British Reformed are the only people I know of that can, they can literally take up swords against each other as to the form of hymnal they use. Um, they really do. Believe me, I, first time, 2005, first time I went to London. And that's when I learned all about the hymnal wars. And, and given that they don't, they don't have music in their hymnals, it's just words. You have to know the tunes, which is fascinating. Uh, but, but given that... Uh, I've just always been amazed at, let's just be honest, the clickishness that can exist amongst people who would identify in some way, shape, or form as Reformed. But my, uh, my Scottish and Irish, uh, especially in Ireland, um, some of the Reformed there can just be nasty, and I mean really nasty, just, just not willing to extend any level of, of grace at all especially toward people who would claim to be reformed. Well, there was a comment that was posted. I, I think it was I think it was on the weekend, so it's been a little while. Um, by William Samuel Bruce. Now, if that doesn't sound like a, uh, a warrior chieftain, I don't know what does. But William Samuel Bruce, um, a group there evidently in Ireland, started jumping on me. I guess somebody posted something from Apologia Church. Um, 
And so the accusation of new Calvinism came up, whatever in the world does. I've never understood what young, restless, and reformed was. I wasn't young enough. I've restless. I, I don't, I sleep real well. Um, <laughs> as I'm getting older, once in a while you have a problem, but um, I'm, I'm training for something called an Everesting attempt. If you don't know what that is, that's, that's climbing the altitude of Mount Everest on a bike in a certain period of time. Uh, the pros are doing it now in one day. That would pretty much probably end every joint in my, at least my knees would be gone forever if I did that. So it won't be in one day, but it's, 29, it's over 29,000 feet of climbing and I'm having to diet. I'm having to train. I'm, ha- I'm doing, that's what I'm doing all my listening to stuff right now and lining books up and stuff like that. Cause I didn't get to do all my Colorado rides this year. So I'm, I'm going to be doing that, uh, in September, Lord willing. Anyway, uh, I beat myself up, so I I sleep well. Uh, I'm, I've never understood what that terminology was meant to refer to, especially when someone tries to apply it to me. My guess is that young, restless, and reformed, and now new Calvinism is just what um, more traditional type people try to label someone who doesn't do it the way they do it. And man, I'm going to tell you something. If there is, if there is one massive weakness in the Reformed Baptist movement, which remember, when I, when I first heard of my first Reformed Baptist church, I had to go to a bookstore as a seminarian and get out the handbook of nominations because I had never even heard of Reformed Baptist. I mean, for a long time, when people would say that, people, people go, deformed Baptist? What's a deformed Baptist? And they, then when you tell them, they say, yeah, it's a deformed Baptist. <laughs> what? Um, so we've, we've come a long ways, but we've pretty much been our, our own worst enemies. Because reformed Baptists tend uh, to be very narrow. Very, very narrow. On the one hand, it can be good in that we are not going to be blown about every wind of doctrine and every little trend and everything else that comes along. On the other hand, it can be bad in that you do it our way, the way we do it, the way what we're familiar with, or you're just not a part of our club, in essence. There can be a, a real narrowness, and sometimes the appreciation for the confession becomes idolatry of the confession. I'll just be honest with you. That's, that's just the reality. And so I think we've been our own worst enemies along those lines. Um, but the, the idea of new Calvinism basically, I think, came about when you, you start, started seeing what looked like a mixture. Now, look, there's, there's been a bunch of people that have come along that have gone, hey, those doctrines of grace sound really cool. They make sense. I'll go with that. But I was one, I, years ago, in fact, I remember uh, when 9-11 took place, I, I was supposed to have gone back east to, to give a presentation. Five points are not enough. And it got scrapped for a few months before travel began to happen again. I forget how long ago that, how long that was after 9-11. But I remember that first trip, you know, the, the soldiers with guns and, uh, you know, uh, the long, 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 long lines and all the rest of that stuff. 
And I was going to give a presentation, five points not enough. I was talking about Reformed worship. I was talking about uh, the, it is true that when you simply join or try to join the five points of Calvinism to a non-Reformed worldview, you end up with real problems. And as we've seen people leaving, apostatizing, they were the people that did that. They, they never had the root. Five points is not enough. Five points is a part of Reformed worldview. And that worldview impacts what you think about the church and about all of life. If you're, if you're not Reformed in the emergency room at the hospital, then you're not really Reformed. Period. So in other words, if what you believe about the real first point of the six points of Stulip or Srusep or whatever you want to call it, but if you if you claim to believe in the absolute sovereignty of God, that has to transfer and translate into how you deal with death in the hospital room, too. See what I mean? So it and what what is the purpose of the church? Uh, why is church discipline important? Why is holiness important? Um, and holiness cannot be defined on the basis of your grandparents' predilections. That holiness has to be defined in light of what it means to stand for the lordship of Christ and under his lordship and the application of his law in your life where you are now, not by wearing the same clothes that your great-great-grandparents wore. Um, so just a few points about what it means to actually be reformed. So this, so this idea of new Calvinism, uh, gets, gets thrown about. So I guess I should get to this. Uh, William Samuel Bruce wrote to Raymond Stewart and said, perhaps the charge of new Calvinism was too generous. This is about, about me. It's definitely a valid charge given the mixture of ostensibly sound doctrine with worldly living. But in James White's case, the rot goes much further. Again, he promotes sound doctrine, but also, and so here's, here's where the rot is. Number one, vigorously defends a false view of Scripture and promotes corrupted Bible versions, often attempting to dazzle his hearers with an apparently deep knowledge of the issues and of the Greek in an attempt to belittle and silence his critics. So this would be uh, clearly either a King James onlyist or a TR onlyist. And so, knowing that the reformers were none of those things, <laughs> these are these people are more Calvinistic than Calvin, uh, who was none of those things. But uh, so, the first thing you say is it's a false view of Scripture. Now remember, I'm the guy that defends inerrancy. I'm the guy that defends the fact that we we continue to possess all the original readings and the manuscripts of the New Testament today. I have defended this in mosques and against atheists, I've debated Bart Ehrman, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I have a false view, vigorously defends a false view. Well, I will vigorously defend the view of Scripture the vast majority of Reformed scholarship today holds over against these folks who do not hold the perspective that the vast majority of Reformed scholarship holds, that, that present a view of Scripture that the translators of the King James Version did not hold. They're the ones with the oddities when it comes to their view of Scripture. Um, but that's number one. Number two, 
Platforms people like Michael Brown, who is a friend and defender of extreme charismatics and word of faith heretics. Well, boy, we've we gone over this one before. Once again, ignoring the reality that while Michael and I have done a tremendous number of things together, such as um, I still think one of the longest, most in-depth exegetical discussions of the Hebrew text of Isaiah 53, which, interestingly enough, was so long ago, was not on video. It's only on audio. That was before we started recording video. I had to look it up recently. It's only on Sermon Audio. It's not on YouTube. Uh, that's why I kept looking for it on YouTube, but I could not find it. And then, then I found out why. It's on Sermon Audio, but it's, it's only audio. We weren't doing video back then. Uh, uh, a long time ago. Anyway, um, uh, one of the most in-depth discussions of Isaiah 53, Michael Brown and I. Um, one of the most in-depth defenses of the doctrine of the Trinity against Unitarians, Michael Brown and I. Um, a startlingly clear refutation, far clearer than anything I've ever heard from these guys, anything I've ever heard from these guys, of homosexuality in the church. Michael and I did that. Uh, the debate in Florida, uh, which went so very, very well. Um, but despite all of that, I am also the person that Michael has debated more than anyone else other than Rabbi Shmuley Botiach. So I am the second most debated person by Michael Brown, where we are debating each other. So we have not, we have done programs on this program where we have disagreed, where we have dialogued about the things we disagree about. None of that has ever been just swept under the rug. It's been brought out there and debated on the basis of Scripture. And so if, you know, these folks, whether they would have the, 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 will to engage in that kind of meaningful interaction, do the homework that's necessary, rather than just simply repeating the same pious platitudes that was, was involved in the, the first point or not? I, I don't know. Um, but the reality is that when it comes to issues such as the doctrine of the Trinity, the Messiahship of Jesus, um, reliability of Scripture, especially knowledge of Hebrew and the, the Hebrew text— homosexuality, the entire field, um, who do we have that I would rather be doing those debates with than Michael? And he just drives you nuts because you don't like what he believes about the other things. Well, I don't either. That's why we debate him. That's why we debate those issues. But we do so as brothers, and you can't do that because if you're honest with yourself, you don't think he is. You don't think he is. There's the issue. Then number three, had to deal with this one goes to mosques to, quote, debate, end quote, Muslims. They're formal, moderated debates. Why put quotes around it? Are you seriously suggesting they weren't debates? Bringing the gospel down to the level of being some way comparable to the satanic lies of Islam. Meanwhile, the Muslim debaters love him because he gives them ammunition for their claims that the Bible is corrupted. Now, this was just a flat-out lie that I just simply had to expose, and I, I simply have to call for this gentleman to repent and repent sincerely for this kind of slanderous lie, because that's what it is. And, and again, the, the gentleman's name is William Samuel Bruce. William Samuel Bruce goes to mosques to debate Muslims bringing the gospel down to level of being in some way comparable to the satanic lies of Islam. I wonder if all of those 
Calvinist missionaries that first brought the gospel to Muslims are not turning over in their graves at what has happened to the people they left back at home that have become this cold to missions work. What would you do, Samuel, if you had the opportunity to stand in a mosque and proclaim Jesus? Do you really think that's bringing the gospel down? Why? On what love? Give me some kind of meaningful argumentation from Scripture. Was Paul bringing the gospel down to the level of Jewish mythology to proclaim the gospel in synagogues? How about Roman mythology for proclaiming it in Roman cities, in, in, the, in the marketplaces? Is that what they were doing? Of course not. This is just pure, pure slander. It's just absurd. I do not understand what motivates someone's heart to look at opportunities. I would like to think that my Reformed brethren would rejoice that we have actually had the opportunity of walking into places like that. And we got to go in those places, not because those people think that we're compromisers. There's not a one of those people out there that think I'm a compromiser. You name me a single, a single Muslim apologist that I've debated that thinks that I compromised in anything whatsoever in my encountering of that, with them in, a, in, in, the, uh, in the mosque. Not a one of them thinks that. Not a one of them thinks that. And you take this, this, the, this the second part, because you hold to this, this indefensible view of textual critical theory, this indefensible view of history, and say, see, they love him because he gives them ammunition for their claims the Bible is corrupted. Not when they're debating me. Not when they're debating me. Maybe you haven't watched some of the debates about, about allegations of biblical corruption, but you're not even close to a semblance of reality in dealing with those debates. Look at the debates I've done with Adnan Rashid on the subject. Look at the debates I've done with Yusuf Ismail in South Africa on that subject at, at, at Northwest University, Pachasrum. You couldn't do that, and you know that. And yet you sit behind your computer screen and take shots as a reformed, a truly reformed person. Stunning. Shame on you. Just shame on you. You just, wow. White, like so many other new Calvinists, probably been a Calvinist longer than he has, is unafraid to resort to dishonesty and mockery in support of his position. Well, no examples were given, of course. Um, that's just the, the way that slander works, is just throw it out there. Uh, but this is the kind of stuff that you're, that you're dealing with when you encounter the crusty Calvinists. The, 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 the Calvinism that is traditional, the Calvinism that very often does not result in a... There is, there is a way of being bold in evangelism that will communicate that your heart is passionate for the salvation of the people to whom you are reaching out. And then there is a way of being bold in evangelism that says the exact opposite of that. That says, I'm doing this to prove something to God, and I really don't care about you. That's not what we've ever wanted to communicate to the Muslim people, or to anybody else that matter. Or to anyone else for that matter. But there is, sadly, an element in Reformed theology that can lead to that kind of crusty hardness 
that truly it brings disrepute to the gospel. Um, so there you go. You, you go out there, you seek to uh, bring the gospel to uh, the Muslim people, and that's what you get from the folks back home, <laughs> is, is something uh, like that. There you go. Well, that's one of the reasons I, I've, I said it before, I'll say it again. I, I don't care about the Calvinist club. I don't care if people want to say, well, he's not Reformed because he doesn't dress like me and he doesn't sing the songs I sing or he doesn't tie his shoes the way I do or whatever else. Um, Reformed theology is biblical theology. I'm not moving from that. I'm defending that. But I'm going to tell you, it's far too easy for me to point to example after example after example of people who get their theology straight and lose their heart in the process. Not interested in it. Don't want it. There's a good example. Next uh, screenshot. It's amazing how you know. It's the only thing. Screenshots are cool. Screenshots are extremely useful. The only thing I don't like about screenshots is you can't search them because it's a graphic. So you can't search the graphic for the text unless I I suppose there would be a way to turn them into PDFs. Uh, That that would be a really neat. Um, program would be a program that would that would tie into like on Mac. I just have I just do command uh, command control or command shift five. I think is what it is, and you just select what you want, save. It goes right into right into my Dropbox, and that way I've got it here. And wouldn't it be cool to have a utility that would take that and then uh, OCR? the screenshot and save it as a PDF. That I wonder if there is such a thing. If because if I'm slow enough to come up with it, someone someone thought of it faster than I did. Because uh, then you could then you could search it. Then you could search text and you could find stuff and that would be really useful. No, because you can't you can't search the you can't search the audio. Anyway, um, so uh, a couple days ago, well, I'm not sure when it was, uh, 7.20, so uh, what is that? Um, two days ago? Three days ago. Um, James Fox Higgins. Now, somebody's told me uh, that James Fox Higgins has a webcast. Who doesn't? Um, we do, too. <laughs> we just started it before anybody else did, that's all. Um, and that he is a new Christian. Well, okay. Don't know anything about him. But someone posted this from an Eastern Orthodox perspective. So maybe that's where it's coming from. I don't know. But here's what it says. It says, I think it's weird that Sola Scriptura apologists, case in point, Dr. James White, so often use secondary texts like dictionaries and Greek lexicons to show you that what the Bible really means is that it is totally sufficient in of itself. It seems like insanity to me. Okay? Now, most folks who are familiar with the historical discussion of Sola Scriptura recognize uh, immediately what the problem is here. But so many... it, It... you you got to understand that for me it's a little frustrating when you've been seeking to communicate 
what sola scriptura means literally from the first time you you defended that belief coming up next month 30 years ago yeah august of 1990 was my first moderated public debate uh, i wish i had a date someplace i wonder do we still have the cassette tapes anywhere yeah um it might be in some of those old dividing line newsletters that we have somewhere. But I would be really, I'd be interested in knowing. I mean, I could just scroll, scroll the calendar back to August of 1990 and sort of take a wild guess, I suppose. But I'd like to know when that was, which day. Uh, it'd, be, it'd be fun. To, we just stink at this self-promotion stuff. And it would be fun to, to, to go, hey, you know, 30 years ago was when we, we began... Um, doing moderated public debates. Jerry Matatix and I, uh, Long Beach, California. I don't remember the name of the Roman Catholic Church. I remember what it looked like. Um, that'll be burned into my memory forever from up front, uh, what that uh, Catholic Church looked like from inside. But uh, that was in Sola Scriptura. And so literally for 30 years, and of course I was doing this before then. It wasn't the first time I had dealt with Sola Scriptura. But Literally for 30 years, I've been trying to communicate to folks. In fact, I just looked over here. This was the tract that we were passing out during the papal visit. Um, 1993 up in Denver, Colorado. And uh, the Pillar and Foundation of the Truth is a uh, tract dealing with the doctrine of sola scriptura and defending it against the various Roman Catholic argumentations against it and things like that. So yeah, it's that was only three years after that debate. Now that I think about it, so that's twenty-seven years ago that we were that, and it was yeah, it was when was the World Youth? I think it was like in July or something. Was yeah, yeah. So it was about twenty-seven years ago this this month that we were doing that. So uh, James Fox Higgins is correct. Uh, that I would be called a sola scriptura apologist, a person who defends that doctrine. But to defend it, you have to define it. And I have done that repeatedly. And the opponents of sola scriptura, almost to a man, refuse to accurately represent it. When I first read Catholicism and Fundamentalism, Carl Keating's book, First thing I recognized was the misrepresentation of the doctrine. Now, the vast majority of Protestants could not define sola scriptura accurately, so uh, certainly Carl should know better today uh, than he did back then. But it's at least understandable that there would be some level of confusion because so many Protestants don't know what it means or don't apply it, don't live it, or have a uh, pitifully narrow understanding of what it actually means as well. So this objection, this is an objection to the fact that I will use secondary text. Now, immediately, secondary text raises a number of issues that have to be, have to be addressed. A secondary text implies a primary text. Primary text would be Scripture. Secondary texts are not of the same nature as Scripture. And the key 
to understanding what the doctrine of sola scriptura means is to recognize that it is a statement about the nature of Scripture that implies an exclusivity to the nature of Scripture, that Scripture is unlike anything else. No Greek lexicon, no work of uh, historical study of Greek grammar or Hebrew grammar or Ugaritic or Aramaic or anything else exists on the same level as Scripture, which is theanoustos, the Greek term God-breathed that Paul used in writing to Timothy. All Scripture is theanoustos. Badly translated in most English translations as inspired, better translated as God-breathed or breathed out by God. Nothing else is theanoustos. The church isn't theanoustos. Tradition is not theanoustos. The only thing is theanoustos is Holy Scripture, what God has revealed in Holy Scripture. And part of the definition of sola scriptura is the assertion of and recognition of that reality. That if Scripture is God speaking, if it is, if it is the very breath of God, which is what breathed out by God, put your hand from your mouth as you're speaking, you will feel the, the, those puffs of breath that you have to produce to be able to produce sound. That's the intimate level of what Scripture is. If Scripture is God speaking, then Scripture has an, a, an epistemological authority that is unique in and of itself. This is why liberalism, its first target, is a denomination's view of Scripture. You must debilitate the highest view of Scripture to then bring in false doctrine, because as long as you have the highest view of Scripture, then you have a, you have a, a view that this is meant to be taken as a whole, it does not mean that you can't look at what John believed or Paul believed or James believed and compare them with one another and recognize differences in language or, or, or any of those types of things. But what it does do is it goes beyond the individual authors and books to a concept of what Scripture is. The scripture is something that took 1,500 years to bring into existence in a unique fashion, in multiple languages, in different historical contexts. 1,500 years. And it was the intention of God to give us this as a whole, and that it has a coherent and consistent message. That belief, I... I, keep having to emphasize this, but that belief is a small minority belief amongst those who call themselves Christians, both in academia as well as in the church in the West today. That is a sad thing to have to say, but I have to keep repeating it so that you recognize that if you believe that, you are in the minority. So you will not, will not be shocked when you encounter many people who do not have that kind of belief. Without that foundation then all of Christian theology becomes matters of individual opinion. Well, I go with this early church father, I go with that early church father. Well, I don't go with any early church fathers at all. I just come up with my own thing. Uh, there can be no 
message of the Christian faith to the world today without the highest view of Scripture. So that involves understanding that Scripture is theonustos, that it is God-breathed, that it has that nature, that, that men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, is how Peter put it, uh, as Jesus himself expressed it when refuting the Sadducees, have you not read what God spoke to you saying? Have you not read what God spoke to you saying, and then he quotes from something that was written 1,400 years earlier. You put those together and you start understanding the tremendous gift that we have in Scripture. And so, in light of that, um, sola scriptura begins by saying this and only this is theonustos. There is nothing else that is theonustos. Nothing else. So it's unique. You cannot make this a lower part of a bigger thing, as Rome does. And as some Eastern Orthodox do, not in quite as dogmatic a fashion, but they do functionally. That is, in Roman Catholicism, this is written tradition. Then you have Oral tradition. I point to nothing because they can never tell you what the oral tradition is. It's whatever Rome defines it dogmatically to be when Rome gets around to doing something like that, but it's this nebulous, undefined body that's been passed along since the apostles, but we don't really know what's in it. So then you have written tradition, oral tradition together become capital S, capital T, sacred tradition within Roman Catholicism. So, the problem with that, of course, is that makes the undefined oral tradition theonustos as well. So, there is something theonustos outside of Scripture. So, when Rome defines, for example, the last two dogmas that, that she did define over the past couple of hundred years, well, past 150 years, um, that being the bodily assumption of Mary and papal infallibility. When she claims she's drawing from oral tradition, that functionally becomes a claim to new revelation, except that it is the idea that this oral tradition was passed down through the centuries. Can't give any evidence of it for hundreds and hundreds of years, especially for those dogmas. Nobody happened to mention it, so we're not sure how it was passed down, but it's still from the apostles, and therefore you can dogmatize it. You can make it something that you have to believe it to enter into the presence of God, to have forgiveness of sins. It's part of the gospel. You can dogmatize it by the authority of the church. That's, that's modern-day revelation. When you can say that in 1954, you have to believe something that no one for the first thousand years of the church taught as dogma. That's new revelation. You, you don't want to call it that. I get it. But that's what it is. So, in Rome, then, you have other things. They don't want to claim this. And remember, I remember when I asked uh, Mitchell Paco in our debate in 1999 in Soul Scripture in San Diego, I said, can you give me a single word that Jesus ever said that has been defined infallibly by the Roman Catholic Church? of him having said it, that's not found in Scripture. No. 
anything the apostles ever said that has been defined by Rome infallibly that is not found in Scripture. No. Scripture is theonistos. It is therefore unique in its character. And because it is unique in its character, then sola scriptura means that Scripture is the sole, because it's unique, infallible rule of faith for the church. It does not mean that the church will not have other rules of faith. It does not mean that the church cannot um, learn from and be blessed by um, natural theology, general revelation, um, We've certainly been blessed by uh, mankind's growth and understanding of the natural world around us in the sense of uh, medicines and technology, and we're being blessed right now to be able to speak to you in this fashion live around the world. There, there are people literally watching this around the world. Never, could never have done this in the past. So we're blessed by all these things, but they none of that including our ability as a church to communicate with other parts of the church, great rapidity. That allows for denominations to make doctrinal decisions from a global perspective, all these things. None of that, however, can displace the unique position of Scripture as the sole theanustos, infallible rule of faith of the church. We can have fallible rules of faith, but they are not theonistos, and therefore they are always underneath and subject to the unique character and therefore authority of Scripture. So, sola scriptura is not a claim that we can answer every single question that could ever be asked of biblical narratives. We do not know um, what Peter's grandfather's favorite sport was. We do not know what James's favorite food was. We do not know which one of the apostolic band told the funniest jokes and made Jesus laugh more often than anyone else. Might find out someday, but we do not know that. And we do not need to know that. We know that Jesus said far more than is recorded for us in the Gospels. Any one of the Gospels you can read in a matter of minutes. In a matter of minutes. They, they were not attempting to record an exhaustive amount of data. And the Bible, sola scriptura, does not mean that the Bible is an inexhaustible collection that gives you an answer to every question you could ever ask about Jesus or the prophets or Moses or what's coming in the future or anything else. It's not meant to be any of those things. And when we try to turn it into those things, and this is one of the biggest things, when you haven't thought through what sola scriptura actually means, then the other side gets you to defend a definition of sola scriptura that is not what we actually believe. And you end up turning the Bible into something that it should never be. And we see people doing this all the time, trying to turn the Bible into a scientific textbook so it can answer this question, that question, that question, rather than giving us the overarching principles, the, the uniformity of nature. God is a creator that has allowed 
meaningful scientific method to exist, we end up turning the Bible into something it was never intended to be. And so, sola scriptura is not a claim that the Bible is an exhaustive revelation that answers every question. It is also, when, when, this, when James Fox Higgins says that I use dictionaries and Greek lexicons, why would I use dictionaries and Greek lexicons? Well, because I engage in exegesis, because I want to know when I open this Greek New Testament up to Luke chapter 22, and I begin reading here, and I encounter something called a hapax legomena. A hapax legomena. Now, what's a hapax legomena? A hapax legomena is a word. Hapax means once. Legomena means to be named. It's named once. It's, 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 a, it's a word, sometimes just the root, that appears only once in the canon of Scripture. Now, many words like logos, logos has a wide semantic domain, a wide range of meaning from word to matter to thing. It can be used in, in many different ways. But it's used many times in scriptures, so you can compare those uses with one another. A hapox, a hapoxagomena, you have nothing to compare it to. And so I want to know what that word would have meant in the mind of the original author, in the mind of the uh, people to whom he was writing. Is he borrowing from some? When, when, when Paul uses arsenokoites, which is not a hotbox, but arsenokoites translated as homosexual, it's men with men in bed. Um, when we look at it historically, in the greater, greatest probability, Paul used that first. There's one other possibility, but most people believe Paul was the first one to use it. Where did he get it? Did he make it up himself? That's quite possible. That's quite possible. It's quite possible that he took the Greek Septuagint from Leviticus 18 and 20, the terminology that's used there, put it together to refer to homosexuality. Um, was he quoting a rabbi that he knew? that had done that before him. These are elements of how you do meaningful biblical exegesis so that if you don't do biblical exegesis, you're putting your own thoughts into the scriptures and then saying, this is what God says. We don't need that. We got plenty of that on the channel between 20 and 22 here in Phoenix. Um, we don't need that. We need to know what Scripture was actually saying. And so exegesis is the, is the discipline that allows us to honor God's word by making sure that when we say, thus saith the Lord, it really is, thus, thus saith the Lord. So I use Greek lexicons. I have, um, right here, I, I have my accordance set up, just popped it up on the screen here, and Okay, I just happened to see, uh, I saw Romans chapter 1 up from stuff we talked on Tuesday, um, and my eyes fall upon a latrusan. Well, I know what the root is, latruo. Latruo is the highest form of worship. I know how latruo and proskuneo um, 
Right before that is esebastesan, uh, that root, also used in the Greek Septuagint. These are terms that refer to worship and various kinds of worship. Uh, but it's very useful to be able to see in, a, in all the, and, and I am so blessed, until the EMP hits, um, I am so blessed to have this massive library uh, I mean, I'd still have my paper library, even if the EMP hit, but I now have so much stuff um, that is only in electronic form that it's a little bit scary. Um, but I have a huge, I mean, I literally on this hard drive have more lexical information about the history and development of the Greek and Hebrew languages than was possessed by mankind 60 years ago in any one place. It's just amazing. It's just amazing. It, it's, it's fantastic. It's, it's something to, be, to rejoice about. The very time we have the greatest attacks upon the faith is the time we have the greatest means of providing defense of the faith. That, don't, don't tell me that's not a part of God's providence. But I want to, I want to know how Latruo was used in the Greek Septuagint, because that's the Bible of the early church. I want to know what Hebrew terms it's translated. And I want to know all of its uses in the New Testament. I can just click on it and have all the uses in the New Testament of that particular term. Is that a violation of sola scriptura? No, it is not. You have to have a very twisted or simply inaccurate or based on ignorance understanding of what Sola Scriptura is. Sola Scriptura does not say that the Bible alone tells me how to use accordance, because it doesn't. I can read the Bible all day long, and there's still stuff that that program over there can do that I don't know to this day. And the stuff that I do know, I did not learn from reading the Bible. The Bible's not claiming sufficiency for using accordance. And the Bible is not claiming sufficiency for the translation of the languages of the Bible into a language that did not exist when the Bible was written. There was no one speaking English when the last syllable of the New Testament was written in Koine Greek. And so the idea that is smuggled into James Fox Higgins, and he probably got this from somebody else. There's probably some priest or something he heard repeating this or something i don't know you, you know when you when you talk you know when i when you talk with with jehovah's witnesses and jehovah's witnesses misrepresent the doctrine of the trinity it's so easy to literally become angry you're misrepresenting a wonderful beautiful divine truth but they probably don't know that the vast majority of jehovah's witnesses only know what they've been told and they've only they've only been told a twisted half truth and James Fox Higgins maybe has never read any of the books on Sola Scriptura that are right back here on, on the shelf. Um, I don't know. But he has imbibed the false idea that to believe in Sola Scriptura is to believe that Scripture is totally sufficient in and of itself for the translation of ancient languages into English which the Bible never claims to be sufficient for at all. That's not what the claim is. 
And so when he comes to his conclusion, it seems like insanity to me. Maybe he might want to stop and go, well, I don't like that guy. But he's not completely stupid. And he has engaged in you know, really meaningful debates with, look, if, if you just take the debates with Mitch Pacwa, did you listen to that debate? Did you think about what was said? Did you hear the fact that I was asking him questions that were meaningfully related to the topic? And I would interact with him on the topic in such a way that I was listening to him and understanding what he was saying. Why won't you do that in reverse? I've never quite understood that. This is a straw man. It's a false representation of what Sola Scriptura is. I wasn't going to spend all that much time on it. My goodness, it's, 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 we've almost gone through an hour. Yes? Just an FYI, that pillar track that you held up, uh-huh. uh, the newer version of that is available at 1milliontracks.com. Why haven't I seen one of these? We haven't gotten our batch yet, but I'll, I'll work on that. But it is uh, online available now. How am I supposed to promote these things when I when I didn't even know this let alone and have not even seen one and don't even have one to hold up this folks is why when people say we're in it for the money <laughs> this have to go but your marketing skills are not exactly top drawer no no they're not they they <laughs> They are not by any stretch of the imagination. Well, good. I'm looking forward to seeing that. <clears throat> okay. All right. Uh, you you got this in there? Okay. So, I've already been preaching for an hour. Uh, I'm sorry? Yeah, we we have these two guys again. <laughs> the seven uh, seven things Catholic, uh, seven Catholic things Protestants should do, or something. Uh, yeah, seven Catholic things Protestants can start believing right now. Okay, and so we've got our our Catholic and our Protestant guy here. I'm just going to be real honest. Uh, this is the Protestant guy that I wanted to have on the program. We've never made it work. We've talked about doing it because he had this guy on before, and I was like, dude. Um, I, I really get the feeling that you're not really a Protestant. You're just a non-Catholic. Um, you, you don't seem to know why the Reformation took place. You don't seem to know what the issues were, why those issues remain relevant today. Yes, things have changed since the Reformation. Yeah, Pope Francis is a train wreck, uh, theologically speaking, even from the Roman Catholic perspective. I get all that. Um, but it's it is frustrating because i i don't know how i don't know how you do apologetics to the unbeliever when your foundations are so wishy-washy just really wishy-washy and but unfortunately that's that's what we've got here and so the last one we did was stuff about mary and i read to you some of the the actual statements concerning mary and co-mediatrix and co-redemptrix and and uh, 
all you know what the fifth Marian dogma is about and the, the paralleling of Jesus in Mary and all this these things. And what this Roman Catholic apologist guy is doing is, I think he's Australian, and so you've got the Australian thing, you know, and uh, everybody knows Australians are really wonderful, and they drink Fosters, and actually most Australians I know detest Fosters. But anyways, um, you've got that stuff going on, and then it's, then it's what, what you're doing is you're, you're taking Rome, and you're taking a general Protestant thing, and you're, you're trying to bend them over as far as you can bend them, so you can... Maybe you can get somebody to jump across the, the gap there, you know, a type of a type of a thing. And unfortunately, it, it's very effective because how many churches do you know today? How many churches today? Ever. Oh, okay, let me back this up. There are a lot of conservative churches that will express, quote-unquote, anti-Catholic sentiments without having the theology in their everyday preaching that would demand that they even bother to address it. So, in other words, uh, it, it's one thing to take shots at Rome because Francis is a blazing liberal. It's another thing to uh, have a meaningful doctrine of the Lord's Supper so that you can have them and the atonement so you can have a meaningful interaction with Rome's doctrine of the Mass as a propitiatory sacrifice. Uh, very few. Protestant churches these days, in the whole, as a percentage. They're still, believe me, so thankful for all the good faithful brothers that are still out there. But we all know we are in the minority. So thankful uh, for those that are and who go, no. One sacrifice, one time, uh, no no priest turning bread into Jesus. Um, so, anyway, so this guy is is presenting these sort of Protestantized I'm not sure that he would survive walking down the street during the Council of Trent, to be honest with you. <laughs> um, but, be it as it may, so we, we skipped the first Catholic thing, because I think it was crossing yourself, so it was irrelevant. I, I, I had used that as an example of an adiaphora in the Roman Catholic controversy. Because I, I have Anglican friends across themselves. Okay, the world, world's not going to end. Um, so, the second one was on Mary... Third one, though, now we're getting down into the gospel. Now we're getting down into the gospel. And so let's, um, let's interact with uh, this third point in the uh, seven, seven points. This is not five points, because then it would be very confusing. The second, so first one was sign of the cross. Second one was blessed Mary. Yep. And the third one is? Third thing is, like, this might be a little harder to swallow for many Protestants, but I, I want to ex- kind of give an argument for why this shouldn't be that complicated or it shouldn't be that controversial. Hmm. Um, and it's going to depend on the type of Protestant you are, but I think that Catholic, I think that Protestants should believe in purgatory. Now, purgatory is one of those real Catholicy words that might sound scary, but you don't have to accept the word to accept the concept. And so, let me just sort of present an argument. I'm really not sure that the Council of Florence would have agreed with that—that uh, that you don't have to accept the word to accept the the the, the concept. Um, but let's let's be clear about something here. Purgatory has been defined as dogmatic teaching by Rome. So you, you won't get it from this guy, but dogma and doctrine are two different things. For example, the, the 
comediatrix nature of Mary has been taught as doctrine by popes, but that's not the same as a dogma. A dogma is de fide, by faith. It is definitional of what the gospel is. You can't reject it and be saved. Now, that's old-time Roman Catholicism. That's dogmatic Catholicism. That's the Catholicism of Trent. That's Catholicism up to Vatican II. And it's the Catholicism that Roman Catholic apologists as general, in general, continue to defend, though they realize in these days that's really tough with Frankie. Um, that's really still the, that was still the Catholicism of Ratzinger, even though Ratzinger was Ratzinger is continues to be brilliant. He was a brilliant theologian, wrong as can be, but still a brilliant theologian. He was the head of the uh, of the modern day incarnation of the Inquisition for crying out loud, um, and plainly is not happy with his successor. Um, so you got two popes that are not really on the same page on a lot of things. But anyway. Um, I, I recognize that many of the Roman Catholics with whom you speak are not Orthodox Roman Catholics. They're, they, they wouldn't, most of them have never read the Cans and Decrees of the Council of Trent. They've never read anything from Vatican I. Um, they've never read anything from Vatican II, for that matter. They may be, they, they, they've probably seen this, but how much of it they've read? Um, and, you know, universal Catholic catechism, and of course, Francis has already made one change in that just by papal authority in regards to capital punishment, um, which is in and of itself interesting. Purgatory, and see what you think about it. And again, tell us in the comments section below if you like. Um, and it would be something like this, right? The saints in heaven are neither sinning, nor are they attached to sin. Okay, why? Why? The saints in heaven have left this life, and if they are in heaven, they are in Christ. And here is where theology matters, and the Reformation matters, and the Bible matters. Why does anyone have peace with God? And we in Rome disagree on what this, the answer to this is. As much as, especially, and, and folks, this could be a long program, Rich. I hope you're doing okay in there. Um, as, as much as we are facing trying times, and as a result, you may have noticed the same thing I'm noticing. There are Roman Catholics who are saying many of the same things we're saying about where the society is going. Because it's, you know, the Marxists will shoot us all with the same guns. Uh, do, you, do you remember when I started talking? Don't sit there and eat in front of me. I'm hungry. Wow. Oh, that's pop. Oh, it's the closest popcorn. Okay, great. Rich can tell I'm, I'm, in the, I'm, I'm in the preaching mode today. So I happen to be hungry right now. I, I'm doing intermittent fasting, and I didn't have a lot for my first meal and so my stomach's grumbling, and I'm hungry. And so Rich it goes, when I say it's going to be a long show, it goes and gets food, and is sitting in front of me eating. I'm telling you, folks, you don't see the things that I see that help me in my, that help me in my sanctification. Thank you for helping me in my sanctification, Rich. So. <laughs> what was I talking about? I don't know. 
Totally blew my blue. Are we talking about Catholicism? Is that what it's? Is that what this this video is about? Man. Yes. Okay. Um, we are being forced. I started talking about this years ago, and I don't remember if if you remember when I started talking about this, but I started realizing years ago that in light of that, unless the Lord brought about a change in our society, Roman Catholics and believing Protestants who know why there's a difference who know why the Tiber River exists, are going to be pushed into closer and closer and closer proximity with one another. Um, as a result, our differences must be understood. They should not be exaggerated or minimized. The temptation amongst fundamentalists is you exaggerate them, you simply dismiss the other side as having anything meaningful to say, you don't engage in debate. To engage in debate is to show respect for the other side by accurately representing them. And I believe we are required to do that. Fundamentalists, and that includes Calvinistic fundamentalists like the fellow we were talking about early in the program, see showing respect for another perspective as an as a, that's what new calvinists do and that's reducing the gospel you just blast them you you don't try to understand them you don't try to engage them you just blast them okay that's the one side on the other side the temptation is let's not worry about what our differences are we let's try to come up with a least common denominator christianity the mere christianity stuff Let's do the ecumenical thing where we can all affirm a general doctrine of the Trinity, a general doctrine of death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and let's call it quits at that point. Let's not worry about the fact that that's not where the apostles called quits, that they defined a whole lot more than that. We can't come to agreement beyond that level, so let's just stop there. That's... That's going to be the temp- the really hard, difficult thing is to continue doing the meaningful debates because you believe in the truth, while recognizing that we are saying a lot of the same things to our society, and we don't share the gospel. We do not share the gospel. So if you want to hear some more about this, go listen to a couple sweater vest dialogues ago, maybe at least one, where um, Doug and I were talking about, um, basically, we talked about G.K. Chesterton. We didn't really talk about um, anything else. Right. It's two back? Okay. Yeah. Anyway, listen to what we discussed and you'll be able to it's I think it's gonna be one of the most challenging, difficult areas. And in fact, there was a dialogue that uh, Peter Lighthart had with Doug Wilson about two weeks ago, three weeks ago, something like that, that had me a little worried, to be honest with you, when I first started listening to it, because I was just sort of like, uh. um, but I was I found it very useful, challenging, but useful. Uh, so check out some of those things. And um, 
basically the conversation that Lightheart and Wilson had was, should we be seeking to bring about unity between Catholics and Protestants? <laughs> Doug's answer was, no. <laughs> but his 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 no answer is about as different as an independent fundamentalist Baptist no answer could possibly be. Honestly. His his no answer is Jesus will take care of all that stuff by bringing us all together in the gospel eventually. That's not what the that's not what the independent fundamentalist Baptist is saying. So, challenging stuff to think about, but the point is this is on all of us. This is coming on all of us. And we have, not many of us have modeled in our teaching and preaching how important the foundational issues are. And when I look back, look, in August of 1990, did I see how all this stuff was related together? No. Do I hope by August of 2030, if the Lord gives me that many years, to have a significantly clearer understanding of how all this fits together? Oh, Lord, I hope so. I hope so. Is that compromise to gain clarity over time? I No, it can't be. It can't be. We're to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That it, it can't be compromised. So, all of us, every single one of us, has to think through these very issues. And what these guys are talking about is a gospel issue. Purgatory is a gospel issue. Now, I know, I know, I know. The phrase gospel issue has become so overworked and so overused. Everything's a gospel issue. If someone claims something's a gospel issue, they need to be able to give you a really reasonable foundation for believing that. Here's my foundation. The doctrine of purgatory speaks directly to the mechanism and means by which we have peace with God. It speaks directly to the efficacy and intentionality of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. It speaks directly to what our status is as righteous saints in Christ. Because Rome has a completely aberrant doctrine of what that means. Rome denies the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Most Protestants do today as well. Most Protestants do today as well. Our hymnology doesn't, but the theology in many, in the vast majority of the schools does. And so, the doctrine of purgatory is a gospel doctrine, even in Roman Catholicism. Even in Roman Catholicism. I know there are liberal priests that don't believe in purgatory. I know that, that I am presenting a more orthodox understanding of purgatory than many Roman Catholic priests do. I get that. I understand. And Roman Catholic apologists are well aware of this, and they will fight and argue about it against their own people. They have to. They see the same issue. They, they have their issues with their, their liberals the same way we have our issues with our liberals. They see that. And there are Roman Catholic apologists that appreciate the stands that I have taken against liberalism and argued 
against liberalism. They do. And have borrowed some of that information for their own uses. So, by the way, I hope that you're not hearing me saying that discussions like this one shouldn't take place. I just wish the Protestant, to be honest with you, brother, had a backbone, showed more knowledge of the historical realities in this situation. I really do. Um, that's, that's the problem, uh, as I see it. So, purgatory in Orthodox Roman Catholicism is the idea that it is not a second chance salvation. You have to be in a state of grace when you die. It is the continuing process of sanctification, because there's no imputed righteousness of Christ. And so let me use, let me use the post-Reformation illustration that I think is extremely useful here. Looking at the clock. Um, you've probably heard, if you haven't heard it the first time, great. You've probably heard it attributed to Martin Luther. The concept of the dunghill. Now, this was a wonderfully German farmer illustration that, that would have communicated so plainly and clearly in its day. But it's still rural and rustic enough that it still communicates today. It's going to be a second before I bring them back up, so if you want to pop them down a second, we'll, we'll, we'll be back to them in a second. Um, in Luther's day, you did not go down to a store and buy fertilizer for your field. Your farm animals provided the fertilizer for your field. And so, your cows and various and sundry other animals, sheep and things like that, you picked up their dung and you piled them up. And you piled them up over the winter. So the next spring, you would then spread them on your fields to increase your yield. Very, very important. Which means that during the winter, you would have piles of dung. Now, in the fall, you know how you'll get that first cold snap and stuff like that, maybe even have a little snow, and then you get second summer. And that warm, that warm front comes through. Well, when you got piles of dung, warm front, pile of dung, not a good thing. Flies, smell, what we used to call fresh country air. Fresh country air. And if you're a city slicker, you may not even know what that is, but it's odiferous. And it's not something you like to look at, but it was a part of life. You had to have it. And Luther said that we in our sin are like a pile of dung. There's nothing attractive about a pile of dung. You don't want to bring a pile of dung into the house. You don't want to bring a pile of dung into the kingdom of God. Track dung across the golden streets. And so what he said was, allegedly said, you can't verify this in firsthand materials, but it sounds like Luther. Really does. Very earthy fellow was he said that we need to understand that justification is like that first snow of winter. 
that covers everything over in that perfect blanket of white. And it's beautiful. And if you... <laughs> I don't know that my daughter could understand this, having grown up in Phoenix. But if you live in a place with regular snow, you know that that first snow is beautiful. It hasn't been tracked through. It hasn't been plowed. Because after the third or fourth snow, you start getting all sorts of dark snow and stained snow, and, and it's just not as pretty as it used to be. It gets a little boring after a while. It's not as attractive. But that first snow, everything's pure. He says, the righteousness of Christ is like that. It covers over the dunghill. It doesn't change the dunghill. It's an alien righteousness. It comes from outside, and it covers over and removes the offensiveness of the dunghill, which is why we can have peace with God, because that, that covering comes from God and is pure and is beautiful and is pleasing to God. Now, Roman Catholic apologists will say that Luther only had half the point here, and that's because he was only trying to illustrate half the point here. Luther was not denying the necessity and importance of sanctification. He was not denying that that God's not going to leave us as a dunghill. But what he was saying is our relationship with God is dependent upon that perfect righteousness that comes from Christ, not anything that is then done in us that becomes pleasing in God's sight. But Catholic apologists will attack that because it's only illustrating one part, because they don't believe in an imputed righteousness. But what they do believe in actually illustrates this very clearly. And that is they believe that baptism justifies by infusing grace. And so what happens is when you're baptized, you are a pile of dung, but you become a pile of gold. You become a pile of gold, and gold is pleasing to God. So you are intrinsically pleasing in God's sight, and that's why you go to heaven. You become a pile of gold. Now, isn't that a much better illustration? Wow, I want to be a pile of gold. Uh, But you can't stop there. You can't stop there. Because, you see, if you commit a mortal sin, a mortal sin in traditional Roman Catholic theology. I doubt the current Pope believes this, but it's still what's taught in the dogmatic canons and decrees of the Church. A mortal sin destroys the grace of justification. So that means the pile of gold becomes a pile of dung again. The problem is you don't necessarily know when that's happened to you. Because there's all sorts of people who got different viewpoints as to what mortal sin is. What about venial sin? Because, see, what happens is if you commit a mortal sin, you become a pile of dung. You have to go back through the sacrament of penance, contrition, penance, and you can be re-justified, turned back into a pile of gold, sacramentally. But you now have flecks of dung on the surface of the gold. Those are the things, those are the temporal punishments for the sin that still cling to your soul, and that's why you have to go and do things. You have to do Hail Marys and crawl on your knees upstairs in Rome and all sorts of stuff like that. Well, if you commit a venial sin, and the difference between a mortal and a venial sin can depend on the 
priest that you ask. Which can be venial sin. Venial sin does not destroy the grace of justification. But more flecks of dung appear on the surface of the gold. And that's why you need purgatory. Only piles of gold go to purgatory in traditional, historic Roman Catholic teaching. Only piles of gold. You have to be in a state of grace when you die. It's not a second chance salvation system. I think the current Pope would change all of that if he could, but it's not as easy as it looks. So, what happens is, there needs to be a mechanism whereby the pile of gold can be purified before it enters into the presence of God. There's no imputed righteousness, so that's what purgatory is. And in purgatory, you have what's called satispasio. Satispasio, the suffering of atonement. So, you are being cleansed through your own suffering. Through your own suffering. If you want to read all about it, pick up this old-time, 1950s Catholicism-style Book, Purgatory, by F.X. Shoup, S.J., Jesuit. Uh, If you really want to hear all the stories about purgatory and what it involves and the sufferings involved and the, the fact that historically it was an experience over time, very plainly, that's what indulgences were all about. Because, you see, you are released from purgatory when your debt of temporal sin is paid for by suffering. But that can be sped up by a transfer of merit to your account. That's what an indulgence is. And yes, indulgences still exist even in the Universal Catholic Catechism of the Catholic Church. Whole sections on indulgences. Still a part of Roman Catholic teaching. Pope Francis has granted plenary indulgences within the past two years for for walking through certain cathedral doors. Go on a pilgrimage, walk through a door, indulgence. I don't know what he really thinks that means anymore, but that again. So, the idea is that an indulgence is a transfer to your account of merit. Where does that merit come from? Well, it comes from the Thesaurus Meritorum, the Treasury of Merit. Well, where does the Treasury of Merit get its, get its merit? Well, the Treasury of Merit developed in medieval Roman Catholicism in the idea that Jesus only needed to shed a single drop of blood to bring about the forgiveness of sins of the world. Now, that's, that's not biblical. That's, that's far away from a biblical understanding of the atonement, but... Rome had already developed transubstantiation and things like that by that point in time, and so you're far, far away from Hebrews and Romans by then anyway. But the idea is Jesus only had to shed one drop of blood. He shed his blood copiously. Therefore, there's all this extra merit. All this extra merit. And we got to put it someplace. We put it in the treasury of merit. And when you are a saint, when you die with more merit than you have temporal punishment— you're a saint. You don't have to go to purgatory. Your scales are on the right side. And so your extra merit goes into the treasury of merit. And, of course, you got Mary. 
Mary has lots of extra merit because Mary does not sin. And Mary does all these wonderful things. And so the treasury of merit is a mixed merit. It's a merit of, of Jesus, Mary, and all the saints. And it's under the control, the keys of Peter, the church. Therefore, you have the concept of indulgences. And so you can be released from the sufferings of purgatory through indulgence. People obtaining indulgences for you here back on earth. As well as people having masses said for you, because mass is a propitiatory sacrifice. It's not a perfecting sacrifice, but it's a propitiatory sacrifice. And so many people in medieval Catholicism would leave much of their money to the church, which is why the church got so stinking rich, so that masses would be said for them after they died, so that they could be uh, released from purgatory. Because the stories that you read about in here is there were many popes that people saw in purgatory. The pope in purgatory. If the Pope's in purgatory and still in purgatory hundreds of years after he died suffering, how long are you going to be there? How long are you going to be there? Long time. Long time. All of this, I've often said that the debate that I did with Peter Stravinskis on Long Island was one of the best illustrations of just how vastly different the gospel message is between Rome and the New Testament. It was clearer than the debates we did on justification. It really was. I didn't expect that when I walked into that room that night, but that's what came about. And if you just go to YouTube and put in Stravinskis, Peter Stravinskis is not happy about this, I can assure you. But the first thing up on YouTube is our debate. And there is a shorter version where we discuss 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I was actually going to play it for you, but I have gone so stinking long um, that I'll just let you look it up. We actually posted from the cross-examination, I think it's seven minutes, seven and a half minutes, something like that. The cross-examination where we went through 1 Corinthians chapter 3. That was one of the clearest illustrations of, and if you want, if you want to go, well, that was just Stravinskis, you know. Two PhDs from Ivy League schools. Listen to the beginning of our debate where the Roman Catholic guy is introducing this, Stravinskis. I mean, if that guy wasn't prepared for a debate, nobody would be. Hundreds of articles written, multiple PhDs. I'm just some, some Baptist, right? Yeah, well, listen to the cross-examination, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And if you want to dismiss Stravinskis... Then listen to the Dividing Line program, where we had Tim Staples of Catholic Answers on, to debate purgatory. And the same thing happens there. Once you get into the text, position falls apart. Because the, the, the apostles had no concept of this. And most Roman Catholic theologians and historians recognize this is a development over time that really did not come into its final form until, well, Council of Florence dogmatically, so the 1400s, but you, you can find it a little bit earlier than that, in a fairly full form. But it was multiple threads that ended up being uh, tied together into the modern doctrine of purgatory, which continues in the dogmatic teachings of the church. And unless they find a way of Wiping them out will always be there, even though the weirdness is, I would say it's fairly obvious, uh, 
that the current pope, even though he granted indulgences, probably doesn't believe any of this stuff. Not in the way that it was that, it, not in the way that the people who dogmatized it believed it. You can always just redefine things over time, I suppose. There's, there's purgatory. Okay, so let's go back to these guys. Second premise is that many of the saints on earth who will later enter into heaven are at the moment of their deaths attached to sin, or sinning indeed. Thirdly, since nothing unclean can enter heaven, including a person who is attached to sin, it follows that something must happen to them before they enter into heaven that will re- remove their attachment to sin. And this is Okay, so do you see why the imputed righteousness of Christ Remember, remember when Sproul, when R.C. said, you know, we, we keep using all these different phrases to try to differentiate things, and da, 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 da. we should call ourselves imputationists. Remember that? That was toward the end of his life. And a few people picked up on it. But what he was touching on there is this is really where the issue is, because this is what separates us from a lot of Wesleyans, uh, a lot of Arminians, um, vast majority of liberals, that's why penal substitutionary atonement is under attack. This whole idea, uh, all the new perspectivists, they have to get rid of all this stuff. You notice I pressed Doug on this issue because there was issues with Federal Vision on the concept of imputation, and he affirmed the imputation of the righteousness of Christ very clearly. Um, but what is the basis of our peace with God? Why do you have peace with God? When you wake up in the morning, why don't you fear the wrath of God, knowing your own heart? I know my own heart. I know the abiding sin. So why don't I fear the wrath of God? Is it just some sort of hubris on my part? Many people would say yes. And if knowing your own heart and your own sin, you don't recognize that you need to have a perfect standing before God, that is hubris. The imputed righteousness of Christ, the great exchange, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He has made sin, I receive his righteousness. A beautiful, positive righteousness. He fulfills the law in my place. He gives his life in my place. That's why you have peace with God. Rome doesn't have that. It's not there. So what you're hearing is, well, there's this attachment to sin. Except I have a sin bearer. And so the idea of a needed secondary cleansing after death, yeah, Rome has to come up with something like that because they don't have the imputed righteousness of Christ. They, they abandoned the gospel a long time ago on that subject. But when Protestants start pushing purgatory, as Protestants have recently, you notice who they are? Wesleyan Arminians. Now, Wesley would throw a hissy fit, but what has the, the leftward turn that they have taken, which recognizes that substitutionary atonement and penal substitutionary atonement are reformed concepts, they moved away from that, and therefore, yeah, it makes sense. There's attachment, there needs to be a cleansing, great, because you don't have the imputed righteousness of Christ. You don't have the full-throated, consistent understanding of Romans chapter 8, who will bring a charge against God's elect. 
It's Christ who died. He is at the right hand. We have an intercessor. So why does there need to be another work other than his work? This is where the dividing line, folks, is. This is what the issue is all about. This is what we have to continue debating. We can't just go, ah, you know, we could really use those conservative Roman Catholics on our side, so we just need to just put all this stuff aside. No, we can't. We can't. We have to pray that the Lord would show them the need that they have for a perfect righteousness, that the partial righteousness that Rome offers them is not enough, is not enough. The church calls purgatory. So you can think of purgatory as the final rush of your sanctification. So when Christ saves us, we come into relationship with Christ, that we, we aren't automatically sanctified. And when Christ saves us, you know, it's... Um, it's not, a, it's not a sort of fiction. He doesn't sort of say... Now, where does he get the term fiction? He's getting the term fiction because Rome says that our understanding of justification, the imputation of the righteous Christ, that, that's the whole thing about the snow and the dunghill. It's a fiction. God's treating you as if you're something you're really not. See, it's a fiction. Imputation. Logizomai. This is, this is what the whole text is all about. That's where the fiction comes from in the language that is used in there. ...are sanctified, and we don't have to do the, the hard work by responding to his grace in becoming sanctified. Uh, and so as we... So see the difference between positional sanctification and experiential sanctification. You have been made holy in Christ. You have his righteousness. And then in this life, he is living out his life in you, and you are desirous of being holy and putting to death sin and so on and so forth. So you have the position in Christ... And the result of that, then, is our desire to live in such a way that is honoring to God and experiential sanctification. If you don't get justification right, and Rome doesn't, then you get the endless treadmill of penances, sacraments that you have within Roman Catholicism. Oh, in our Christian walk, we might find that we begin to turn away from sins that we were engaged in in the past. We might grow in virtue because of the grace of God. But if we're not fully sanctified, we're going to need to be, and God makes that happen for us if we will be saved prior to us entering heaven. Here's an analogy. If you, Cameron, and I were walking into a house, and we were all muddy from hanging out at the creek, and I said, nobody enters that house unless they are clean, and you will enter that house, and you know that you're dirty, then you know that something has to happen before you enter that house. Um, so you could think of it as sort of like the... So, so are you watching this fellow? He's, he's going, how am I going to answer this? How, how am I going to respond? That's, that's the look on the face. That's, 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 that's what I think. ...up process before entering the house. And again, this is all a grace from God. Now, as far as does this take any temporal duration, the church hasn't actually commented on that. No, that's... I'm, I'm sorry. Um... <laughs> That, that is, that's what Stravinska said, too, and that's just simply historically bogus. It's historically bogus. Anyone reading the documents of the church up until minimally the 20th century knows that's not true. Just look at the scapular. Look at the promise. Wearing the scapular, promise was given that Mary 
would descend into purgatory on the Saturday after your death to remove you from the pains of purgatory if you wore the scapular, if you were wearing the scapular when you died. On the Saturday after your death. What's that? That's a temporal progression. All the indulgences were measured in days. Days in what? In purgatory. I, I mean, just, just read this. And then listen to the modern apologists and go, yeah, there's no, there's that's a huge, you, you're you're, it's sort of like New Agers today that that try to promote New Ageism amongst the West and they just remove all the Hindu stuff that we don't like <laughs> from all of it because we wouldn't we wouldn't do any of that stuff. Anyways, um, that's that's the same thing here. No, there was very plainly, very clearly a strong temporal aspect. Yes, the modern church wants to try to de-emphasize that. But, yeah, that was that was there all along. Some have said, speculated, that this might take a sort of certain amount of time. But other people, such as Pope Benedict XVI, when he was jo Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, he said that it may just be the encountering of God's love which strips us of our impurities in an instant and enables us to behold. So, so you'll get some of these people that, said, that actually describe purgatory as being God loves the hell out of us. He loves the hell out of us. So we, we get embraced by divine love, and the last attachments to sin are broken, and that's what purgatory is. Well, again, if, if, if you want to present that now, just don't pretend that's what the Council of Florence believed. Don't pretend that's what the Council of Trent believed. Just admit we've changed. We used to believe that. There were people who gave their last farthing and starved to death to buy indulgences because they felt that their loved ones were still suffering in purgatory because of the church's teachings about the temporality of that suffering. That happened in history, but they were wrong. And the church was wrong to do that. Just be, just be upfront about it. Just be straightforward about it. I mean, this is, this is not even debatable. You, you would not want to try to debate this one. I, I cannot imagine a single Roman Catholic apologist who would actually debate that the church never gave a temporal indication. The only, th the only thing you do is that, well, maybe in a dogmatic statement. No. Too easy to prove this one. No one would ever pick, to, would ever take that challenge. It's just too easy. God. So that's, that's something I think Protestants should be open to. Yeah. What do you Pur think? Purgatory? So there's a philosopher that I really, really like. He's a Protestant, Jerry Walls. Bing, 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 bing. That's the exact person I, I talked about. Look up Jerry Walls in the archives of the Dividing Line. We talked about his collapse on this very issue. And here's a good example of a philosopher whose theology is just non-existent. And therefore, you get this. He actually wrote a book. He, he co-wrote the book that I gave you, or I showed you earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's basically a whole thing against Catholic teaching. But he's a Protestant who believes in purgatory. And so he has a, a very interesting argument for that, which is basically along the same lines as what you just gave. So I find that pretty... I'm, I'm definitely open to that, to sanctification being a process rather than something that just sort of happens. This is what happens when you pretend to be a Protestant and you don't know what you believe. You just don't know what you believe. You don't, you don't know the history. You don't know what the Reformation was about. Eh, I'm open to that. I'm open to that. <sighs> so sad. So sad. I, I, as an apologist, theology determines apologetics. You have to know what you're presenting to people. And a gospel 
that does not have at its center the finished work of Christ and a gospel that does not give you peace isn't a gospel worth presenting to anybody, anybody at all. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Um, I still have this up. So let's, let's finish up, because I was going to go back to the Jay Dyer thing. I don't have time to do that. I went long on all of this. Um, this is a low, YouTube, you know what the uh, resolution on our YouTube version is? 480. That's how, that was 19 years ago. It was VHS. In fact, didn't you, you were there, right? And you, didn't you um, do the, like the subtitles and stuff like that, that night and handed it to Stravinskas? Yeah, yeah. We actually, for a while, went through that torture and dragging all that equipment around and, and everything else. Um, ugly, very ugly. Uh, but can you, uh, I'll keep that center there. Can you make that work? Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and attach. I'm going to go ahead and play this. And this is the cross-examination period between myself and Father Peter Stravinskis. Dr. Peter Stravinskis, uh, two Ivy League PhDs, editor of the Catholic Answer, hundreds of articles, taught in... If, if he can't provide a Catholic answer, then no one's going to be able to provide a Catholic answer. This was from 2001, I think. Uh, I think it was 2001, so about 19 years ago. Um, we've been dealing with this subject for a long, long time. And unlike our erstwhile Protestant friend, we know what we believe about this issue, this subject. And even though Stravinskis is not exactly an ultra-conservative on these matters, as you will see by his answers, um, I want you to listen to the cross-examination from that debate. And then what we'll do, as soon as it ends, just go straight into the, into the close. So I won't have any comments or anything after that. I, I will try to not have any comments uh, uh, at that point. Um, but let's, uh, let's, let's listen to what happens here. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning at verse uh, 10. Uh, what is your understanding? Who is being discussed uh, contextually in this passage? Starting at verse... Well, just in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 in general. For example, when it says, uh, uh, let, let a man be, uh, verse, uh, verse 10... But let each one look to how he builds upon it. Who is who is being who is being discussed here? Is this uh, all saints? Is this Christian leaders? Is this only who are those? Is it not saints, but those who have to go to purgatory before they become saints? What? How do you understand it? Well, Paul is talking about himself as the as the architect who laid the foundation, correct? Mm -hmm. And the process of the the planting of the gospel being done by various people. Mm -hmm. So the, specifically, the context then is referring to people who are involved in building the church. Let them be careful how they build upon the foundation I've laid. We would agree with that. Okay. Uh, then when he goes on to talk about this uh, building upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble, mm -hmm. uh, what do you understand those words to refer to, please? Well, he's referring, notice he changes the pronoun at that point to you. 
which mm -hmm. is to say the cooperation of the believer in the work of the construction of the edifice. Uh, actually, he uses the indefinite there, but if anyone builds, uh, verse 12, tests is used there. Uh, so what, does, what do these things refer to then? The gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. What are those? One's individual gifts, talents, etc. Um, or the, the lack thereof, the, the non-use of, of these things. So that I, if I have a talent that's gold and instead I, I don't use it, is that perhaps straw being introduced into the edifice? Okay. Uh, when it refers to the day revealing, uh, making manifest these works uh, that are being built upon the foundation, that uh, there is going to be an apocalypsis is the actual term, that it will be apocalyptized by fire. Um, is it your belief that what is being referred to here is purgatorial sufferings in regards to temporal punishments of sins? I think first of all he's talking about the day of the Lord uh, coming into the life of the individual <clears throat> and um, furthermore the individual's participation in that day of the Lord. Do you believe that what is being referred to in verse 13 uh, when it refers to the fire shall reveal it and each one's work of what sort it is the fire will test that this is the fire of purgatory well first of all the, the church does not teach uh, the precise nature of purgatory and so I would say that this is a metaphor here as is the church's use of the metaphor of fire for purgatory has the church used this passage as a substantiation for the existence of purgatory? As an indication of the primitive belief in purgatory, yes. So if the primitive writers believed in purgatory, and if the church has pointed to this, um, then can we not ask concerning the nature, uh, not the physical nature, but the fact that this fire reveals of what sort works are? Would it not have to, sir, if it's supportive of the concept of purgatory, would it not have to, in this passage, refer to some sort of suffering and some sort of cleansing of temporal punishments of sins, not merely the demonstration of whether a church leader's motivations were pure, whether his works were gold, or whether the they were strong? The revelation is in itself a form of catharsis or purification. So revelation in testing is involving purification. Um, is that what you just indicated? If you reveal my flaws to me, that revelation in and of itself can be purifying. Those who built with gold, silver, and precious stones also go through this fire. Um, where is there any concept of these individuals needing this purification before they enter into the presence of God? Does it not say that, that they actually receive a reward, that there's nothing here concerning um, their needing this purification? Well, I think it's, it's the simple realization that even the just man sins seven times a day. And therefore, the need for purification for, the, for, for most people. So... Where in the text do you have 
uh, this mixture where you have people who have gold, silver, precious stones, and they have a little wood, hay, and straw burned, and that's their purification. Where, where does that, is that derived from, from the text? I'm, I'm missing your point. Well, you just indicated the just man sinned seven times, so it sounded like you were asserting that even those who built with, uh, with uh, gold, silver, and precious stones... Yes. Uh, that they themselves are undergoing some sort of purification here. The only thing the text says is they receive a reward, uh, and the others do not. What is their reward? What rewards are given in purgatory? Heaven. But they both get heaven. So wh- the, the one gets something the other doesn't get in this text. What is it? Where does it say the other doesn't get anything? Verse 15, but if a, cer- but if a certain words, one's works are consumed, he shall suffer loss, yet he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. He doesn't receive a misthos. He does not receive a reward. So if the reward's heaven, then this can't be purgatory because this ends up in hell. I don't see that. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Well, no, 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 no. Let's let's be respectful, everyone. Let's see if we can work through this. The fact of the matter is, both these groups experience the same testing by fire, but the ones who have their works remain, which they have built upon the foundation. Verse 14 says, "Mithon lamesetai." They shall receive a reward, a misthos. But if Another one has their works, which they have built, which were made of wood, hay, and straw, burned up, consumed. They shall suffer loss, yet they shall be saved, yet so as through fire. So if this is the fire of purgatory, both experienced it. One gets reward. If that's heaven, what do the other people get? Do you see the point? You're saying the ones whose works are burnt up get the reward. No, they don't get any reward. That's what it says. They suffer loss. Zemiao means to suffer a loss of something. If it is burnt down, he will be the loser. And though he has saved himself, it will be as if one who has gone through fire. Wow, that's a fascinating translation. <laughs> I'd like to pick up with that on the second, second round. 